Thank you for joining our podcast here at Peninsula Covenant Church. Stay tuned as together we'll study God's Word. At the same church in Aptos for since 1993, and I am telling you, this church is not losing steam. It is gaining ground. Very rare for a pastor that's been there almost three decades. Uh, he, his church, Twin Lakes, has a regional influence and really a, an international influence. Uh, he's married to one wife. He's got three grown kids, um, two sons and a daughter. His daughter actually attends PCC Hudson. She and her husband are launching Young Life here in the, Bay, uh, in the peninsula. So it's amazing what they're doing, too. Uh, words that come to mind. Yeah, we can clap for Young Life. We need that. Yeah, awesome. That is a ministry targeted to middle schoolers and high schoolers who would never set foot in a church. Um, Uh, Words that come to my mind when I think of Renee, humble, gifted, shepherd, amazing. And there's one other word that comes to mind when I think of Renee. If you've read the book, it's the word bagel, bagel, because Renee started the book in Bethlehem eating an Israeli bagel, ends the book talking about pulling a bagel out of his backpack. So Renee, we have a gift for you. Can you welcome Renee up here right now? Now, Renee, this is a special bagel. Like God, it can rescue you. And so if, if you could try it on just to show us how, how that bagel might work, you know, we won't make you preach in that. But thank you. It works. It works. It works. It works. Right. Thanks so, hey, we just want to thank you. What you may not know is your impact, and sometimes you have a, a word from the Lord, and you put it down on paper, but, and you don't really know what's going to happen. No. And what's so beautiful, we have uh, about 50-some groups uh, that are small groups here, wow. and it's almost up to about 40 of those groups that are using the Chase of thank David God. material. Wow. What's God. great is uh, we sell books, and we hope people use the books that we get, uh, give out, but the response has just been amazing to hear how God has used uh, what you have written. We, we haven't uh, sold as many books except for uh, the Purpose Driven Life book. Really? You know, wow. And uh, wow. we, have, we, we went on faith and went and got 520 books from you, and I thought, there's no way we'll sell those books. <laughs> and today, we don't have a book left. Somebody wow. wanted a book today. We didn't Praise have God. it. Yeah, so Praise it's just God. awesome. It's awesome. Praise the Lord. Praise yeah. the Lord. Thank you. So thank you. Thank you Go very much. It. Is that Please. mine? That's good. Thank you. Man, thank you so much. I, I, I'm, I'm honest with you. Uh, the bagel thing has never happened to me before in any church I've ever spoken at. That's a first. But uh, no, I love you guys. And I hope you know this about your senior pastor, Gary Gadini, who was up here introducing me. Gary is the most encouraging human being on the face of planet Earth. And can we just give it up for Gary and his ministry here? What an amazing guy. What an amazing church. I've had a blast speaking at all these different services. This is my fourth service. I've had a chance to be at a PCC, going to three different locations. And it's just been a ball. You, you all just have a wonderful wonderful church. One Sunday when I actually was off at uh, my church where I pastor, Twin Lakes uh, near Santa Cruz, actually came up here and attended two of those services just as an attender. And it was so beautiful. It was last December. Gary, you brought a message about Mary that was riveting. It was so good. I ripped off the entire thing the next weekend at my church, but it was awesome. But also, another thing you may not know, but it can now be told, is Gary actually came up with the title for the Chasing David book. 
I saw him at a conference we both attended in May in Colorado, and he was like, what's going on? I said, well, I'm writing this book about David. He said, what's the title? And at the time, the title was some unwieldy, non-interesting, like learning life lessons through the life of the founder of the Israelites' greatest monarchy. And Gary's like, uh-huh, how about Chasing David? Of course, it's brilliant. So once again, let's thank Gary for his contribution to the book. And this weekend, what we want to do is start to wrap up this series in David by talking about finding perspective in the chaos. If you're just joining us for the very first time this weekend, you're all, what's this about chasing David? For eight weeks, uh, eight churches together have been studying the life of King David in the Bible. Most people, the only thing that they know about King David is he's the, the little kid who fought Goliath, right? Well, he had a whole vastly interesting life. It was some kind of a soap opera, all kinds of ups and downs. And we're going to look today at one of the last things he ever did and how he looks back on his life and how that teaches us how to find perspective in life's chaos. But I want to start by telling you the story of my friend Dan Adranya. Uh, Dan became a Christian at the church that I pastor, and he was always just full of the joy of the Lord. But just a short time after he became a believer in Jesus, that joy was put to the test. It was Christmas Eve, and Dan was driving on his way to one of our candlelight services, and he started to get this tickle in his throat, a nagging cough. He kept (coughs) coughing so badly that he could barely stop long enough to get a breath. And so on his way from his house to our Christmas Eve service, he decides to take a quick detour to the hospital emergency room, just because he figures I should probably get this checked out. Well, at the hospital emergency room, he sits down on the waiting bench, and he keels over. He faints. This is Christmas Eve, and he doesn't wake up till March. Because what Dan had was a nasty strain of viral pneumonia, which became complicated by his diabetes. He was in a coma for over two months. He coded flatlined, that is, basically died, not once, not twice, but three times. They had to resuscitate him from that sure death event. And while he was in the coma, gangrene began to set in. And to save his life, they had to cut off all the toes on his right foot, and then all the toes on his left foot, and then his right foot, and then his left foot, and then his right leg, and then his left leg. And then the tip of his nose and the back of his scalp, they were just carving him to bits. This is all happening while he's unconscious. And then in early March, I get the phone call, Pastor Renee, get down here right away. Dan just woke up. With no medical intervention, with no warning, his eyes blinked one morning in March. And he woke up with no brain damage or anything. And he looked down and his body was the way I just described it. What do you think your first response would be? The last thing you knew, it was Christmas Eve and you had a cough. The next time you open your eyes, it's March. And and your life is the way, altered forever, the way I just described it. Well, I go in expecting to see Dan just in shock, of course. And I go, hey, hey Dan, how are you doing? I was the first person who wasn't a medical profession that Dan, Dan had seen since he woke up. And Dan's attitude is incredible. I told you this. He looks up at me and, and, and he says, well, Renee, let me put it this way. I woke up. And I looked down and realized I'm not half the man I used to be. That was literally his first line to me. I kid you not. His attitude is just 
incredible. He now has prosthetic legs, and they are amazing. If he's wearing long pants like I am right now, you cannot tell that they're fake legs. He can walk, he can skip, he can run. But this ability, coupled with his just natural cheerfulness has gotten him into trouble uh, at times. He comes up to me uh, recently before our Saturday night service, and he says, Renee, I just have to tell you what just happened to me at Great America this weekend. How many of you have ever been to Great America, the amusement park, right? Okay. Well, until just a couple of years ago, they had a roller coaster called Invertigo. Do you remember that ride? Let me show you a picture of it. Dan and a friend of his decide to go to uh, Great America for the afternoon, and they decide they want to ride this ride. Uh, there's a couple of things you got to know about this for the story. First of all, it shoots right out of the gate at full speed. Then it goes through all these loops and twists and turns. And then it goes up almost vertical and stops just like a dead end. And then it goes backward through all the loops and twists and turns again. Now, another thing they did for the ride is you don't sit next to the person you're riding with. You sit across from them. You face each other. So you can watch each other scream in abject terror or something. But also because one of you is facing forward for half the ride, and then you're facing backward for half of it as the other person's facing forward. Make sense? Then finally, to understand the story, you have to see that in Vertigo, the tracks are above your head. The car is suspended from the tracks so that when you sit down, it's like a ski lift and your legs dangle. And this is what happens when Dan decides to ride on in Vertigo. He gets on and he's facing about a fourth grade girl who he's never seen before in his life. He's wearing long pants with prosthetic legs. The ride starts, three, two, one, blast off. They get shot out of the gate. Dan tells me that his legs instantly whipped over his shoulders. The soles of his feet facing backward, a biologically impossible angle. And then as they start going through all these loops and twists and turns, Dan's legs start pinwheeling like, like, little girl across from Dan is staring open mouth. She can't believe what she's seeing. And then when the track goes up and abruptly stops, Dan's pant legs whip forward and his prosthetics, because they're not attached anymore, they rocket out of his pants over the head of the little girl into the clear blue California sky. Then they start going backward and Dan's pant legs, now empty, are whipping toward her like Dan says... Renee, it was like penance in a stiff breeze. And he says she's now grabbing her own legs, shrieking, no, no! <laughs> they finally come to a stop. The girl instantly goes running away, screaming. She's traumatized. Dan's not going anywhere till his friend finds his legs, which were fine. But after he put them on, he said they tried all afternoon to find that little girl to explain to her what she witnessed. And I said, well, they never found her, by the way. So somewhere in San Jose, there's a fourth grade girl going, don't go on in vertigo because your legs could come off. I saw it happen. You're such a liar. I saw it. I asked Dan, why, Dan, why didn't you tell her that they were prosthetics when the, when the ride stopped? Because you never found her. You know, here's his answer. He says, Renee, I tried, but I was laughing too hard. 
How do you get a sense of humor like that about life? I asked Dan one day, where did you get all your joy? And here's his answer. He said, Renee, my whole life is, a, is like a living example of Romans 8, 28. That's a Bible verse that you may know. It says, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who are the called according to his purpose. In all things. And Dan like really believes that. How has he seen God work through that? Dan is now a rep for Wheels for the World. That's a ministry that takes old wheelchairs and fixes them up and brings them to parts of the majority world where people can't otherwise get wheelchairs. Here's a picture of Dan in Ghana, West Africa. That's Dan in the front there with his legs out in front of him. And he's fixing up a guy in Ghana. And after he sets up people with their wheels, Dan has not yet revealed that he's got prosthetics. He pops off his legs and falls into a wheelchair of his own and there's instant connection as he's able to share his own testimony. And Dan has told me, Renee, I never would have had this international ministry if not for going through that, that, that seeming chaos. My whole life is a living example of Romans 8.28. Well, here's what I want to talk about today. Life, your life and my life is a roller coaster at least as crazy as in vertigo. It's got ups and downs and twists and turns. Your life and my life will at times be, be full of chaos, relational chaos, spiritual chaos. I mean, we have ups and downs professionally and, and emotionally. So how do we survive all of that with calm and with joy? You learn to see your life with the same perspective that my friend Dan had. And that's what we see David doing in today's story. Grab your message notes so that you can follow along. Talk about a roller coaster life. I mean, you've seen David's life if you've been with us during the series so far. And when we last left David, as he rides back into Jerusalem after Absalom's revolt, he's hoping for a time of peace. And instead, there's another revolt almost instantly. Then there's a three-year drought and famine. Then those pesky Philistines start another war. And then David himself is almost killed in battle. The way the Bible describes it is he's cornered. A man with a raised spear is about to skewer him. His nephew Abishai shows up at the last possible second. And David is saved when Abishai spears the man about to spear David. But after that, David's advisors tell him, listen, you are never going out to battle again. You can't hack it anymore. You are too old for this. Imagine how hard that was for David to take. He's David the giant killer. He's David the legend. He's David the great warrior. And now he's just an old man and they're taking away the keys to the car. Look at the way the Bible describes David in 2 Samuel 21 15 during this time. He became weak and exhausted. And then, right at this spot in the text, at this low point, the writer of Samuel inserts a song in 2 Samuel chapter 22. It says, David sang this song to the Lord on the day the Lord rescued him from all his enemies. In other words, the last time he went out, and faced an enemy, which was this battle, he wrote this song. That's the context for this song, what I just described to you. Some scholars believe it may be the last psalm that David ever wrote. 
And I want you to look how he starts it. This is sort of his, his thesis statement. He's saying, the Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my savior. My God is my rock in whom I find protection. He's my shield, the power that saves me and my place of safety. I want you to see that because it's at this time of chaos that he says these words. He's saying, yeah, life right now is unstable, and I have been unsteady many, many times in my past, but God has always been my rock. And then he goes on to give examples. Look at how he chooses to frame his life. The rest of the song falls neatly into three divisions, past, present, and future. He looks back on his life as an old man now, and he says, first, in my past, God saved me. As in literally saved his skin, saved his life time after time. Rest of verse 3. He's my refuge, my savior, the one who saves me from violence. I called on the Lord who was worthy of praise, and he saved me from my enemies. Enemies? What enemies? Think of all the enemies he had in his life. Started out with lions and bears and and then the giant, and then murderous King Saul, and then all the other wars that he went through, his own son's treachery, all of these enemies. And David says, here's how that felt. It felt really bad. Verses 5 through 11. The waves of death overwhelmed me. And I love that it's not just one wave. Like, it's not just a one-time tidal wave. It's waves. It's wave after wave of this stuff in his life. The waves of death overwhelmed me. Floods of destruction swept over me. The grave wrapped its ropes around me. Death laid a trap in my path. But in my distress, I cried out to the Lord. Yes, I cried to my God for help. And he heard me from his sanctuary. My cry reached his ears. And then what did God do? Now, look at this closely. Don't miss this. Here's how David describes it. Then the earth quaked and trembled. The foundations of the heavens shook. They quaked because of his anger. Smoke poured from his nostrils. Fierce flames leaped from his mouth. Glowing coals blazed forth from him. He opened the heavens and came down. Dark storm clouds were beneath his feet. Mounted on a mighty angelic being, he flew, soaring on the wings of the wind to my rescue. Now, wait a minute. When did this ever happen in David's life? When did David ever see God split heaven open and come down, mounted on a heavenly being, and soar to his rescue like this? When did that ever happen? Let's see, did that happen when he faced Goliath? Mm, No. Did that happen when he had to hide in a cave underground from Saul? No. Did that happen in any of his battles with the Philistines or the Amorites or any of his other enemies? No. Did that happen against... If you look back on his life, you slowly realize... This never happened. In David's life, God never shows up, not visibly. So what in the world is David talking about here? What's happening here is the same thing that happens when you talk to like an older person who, who has known the Lord for many years and you, and, and you ask them about a time in their life when things really went south. And they say, you know, looking back, I can see 
God active that whole time. Now, I didn't, I didn't see it then. Back then, it felt like chaos and darkness. But now, looking back, man, I can see God's fingerprints were all over it. God was with me that, that the whole time. God was invisible, but God was there. And he was active, and he was working. That is how David chooses to frame all of those dark times in his life. And if David was narrating your life this way, do you know what he'd say? That friend who brought you a meal the time that you were sick, David would say, oh, that was an angel soaring to you with manna from heaven. And that sunrise that you saw one day on the way to work or to church or to school, David would say, remember that day that the heavens split open and God showed you his glory? Or that song you heard at just the right time. For David, looking back, that's God soaring to you on the wings of the radio ether mounted on cherubim, reaching down from heaven, pulling you out of deep waters, leaving a vapor trail in his wake as he shot with you back up to glory. See, that is how he chooses to perceive his life. And he goes on, verse 17, he reached down from heaven and rescued me. He drew me out of deep waters. He rescued me from my powerful enemies, from those who hated me and were too strong for me. He led me to a place of safety. He rescued me because he delights in me. David says, God rescued me. Why? Because, simply because he delights in me. I think this may be the most audacious, most difficult phrase to accept or believe in this whole song. God saved me because he delights in me. In fact, try saying this sentence out loud right now. God delights in me. Say that with me. God delights in me. Say it again. God delights in me. No, say it like you mean it. God delights in me. Maybe that's making you squirm just a little bit. Some of you are thinking... I, No, I believe God saves me, but not because I delight him. I'm pretty sure I disgust him. No, God delights in you. He likes you. He doesn't just love you because it's kind of his job description, right? You say, no, he can't possibly delight in me. I'm so inconsistent. I'm so not righteous. Think of who's writing this. David, very flawed, Listen, some of you, I think God brought you to PCC today here that, just to hear the next 60 seconds. So listen closely. God delights in you. As Brennan Manning put it, Jesus Christ, this moment, comes right to your seat. And he says, I have a word for you. I know your whole life's story. I know every skeleton in your closet. I know every moment of sin, shame, dishonesty, and degraded love that has darkened your past. Right now, I know your shallow faith, your feeble prayer life, your inconsistent discipleship, and my word is this. I dare you to trust that I love you just as you are and not just as you should be. Do you believe that? Now, yes, of course, God's 100% delight 
doesn't imply his 100% approval of every single thing you do. Do parents delight in their kids without approving of their tantrums? Of course. But the thing is, when you really start to believe this, your spiritual growth takes off. As you start to see how all through your life, God has saved you. As sure as if he were visibly coming down from heaven. In fact, let me just give you some homework. Write down three ways. Do this this afternoon after the Niner game. (laughs) Write down three ways that God has saved you in your past. Like maybe a prayer got answered. God gave you a job or a meal or you got an encouraging text or an encouraging phone call. Write it down because I guarantee you remembering the ways that God saved you in the past will get you through the next time of chaos on the roller coaster of life. I spent most of my time on that first point because so does David. But then we get to number two. David says, in my present, God strengthens me. Anything you're facing right now, God will strengthen you. Do you believe that? You can do anything that God calls you to do. He will give you the strength for it. Verse 30, David says, with your help, I can attack an army. With God's help, I can run over a wall. Jump over the whole thing. What? What? Remember the context. He is old when he's writing this. This is right after his worst performance in a battle. He just almost died. He's weak. His skills are gone. But he doubles down on this imagery. Verse 34. He makes me like a deer that doesn't stumble. He helps me stand on the steep mountains. He trains my hands for battle so my arms can bend a bronze bow. What is he talking about? He's saying God will give him all the strength he needs for the tasks he has left. And the same exact thing is true for you. Maybe there's some challenge in front of you right now making you feel totally incapable, as incapable as you would be if you were asked to bend a piece of metal with your bare hands. David says, if I have to bend a bronze bow, if God really needs me to do that, God's going to help me do it. And then David uses one of my favorite phrases of all the great phrases he wrote. This has got to be one of my favorite. He says, you protect me with your saving shield. You have stooped to make me great. God stooped to save you. Because we couldn't reach God, and so he stooped to us by his grace. This is a theme of scripture. Somebody called it the stooping of majesty. God keeps coming to us closer and closer and closer. God stooped from heaven to reveal himself to the people of Israel on Mount Sinai, and then closer into the tabernacle, and then into the temple, until finally God stoops all the way down to a lowly feeding trough in Bethlehem, and then all the way further down to a cross, and then down to the grave, as low as you can stoop, to rescue us. The stooping of majesty, that's the plot line of the Bible. The Bible's not about man's search for God. It's about God stooping and seeking and saving you. And then even more amazingly, David says, you have stooped to make me great. And that's true of you too. That's why God saved you, to make you great. Do you believe that to be the case? 
I mean, why do you think he saved you? To just kind of be some milquetoast Christian? To, to, to be this mildly inoffensive, uh, you know, Bible-toting, church-going individual? To get a perfect attendance pin or something like that? No, God saved you to make you great. To make you into the best version of you that he sees in ways you can't. Can you really believe that? He's going to make your character like Christ. He's going to work through you in amazing ways. So David chooses to frame his life like this. In my past, I see God saving me again and again. In my present, I see God strengthening me again and again. And in my future, God secures me. God secures me. Very last line of the song. You show unfailing love to your anointed, to David and all his descendants forever. God's love is unfailing forever. He will never stop loving me. David is saying, when God saved me, he saved me forever. My future is secure, so I have absolutely nothing to worry about. And the same applies to you too. So look at the ways David framed his past, present, and future. What a great example of the power of perspective. Again, remember the context. For David, life is not exactly going great when he writes this. Yet this is how he chooses to frame his life. So the question is, how are you choosing to frame your life right now? Because you are choosing to frame it somehow whether consciously or subconsciously, you are constantly gathering evidence to support your point of view about, about what your life means. So choose carefully how you are framing your life, what evidence you are seeking, because you tend to see whatever you seek. Like if you're looking at your past for ways God supported you and saved you, you're going to find evidence of that over and over. But if you're looking into your past for ways you keep messing up, or ways other people keep hurting you, you're going to find that too. You tend to see whatever you seek. And this is why two different people in the same circumstance can have totally different experiences. Would you agree with that? I saw it just this last month when most of us lost power. How many of you lost power during the great California blackout? Anybody here? So at our church in Santa Cruz on Sunday morning two weeks ago, uh, we actually had power in our auditorium, but the entire surrounding neighborhood for miles around us was black. And uh, ironically, the emergency services tent that PG&E had set up just around the corner from our church building had no power. The PG&E emergency generators for the PG&E community support tent didn't work. How many of you are not surprised by that whatsoever? So I went down and I invited everybody, come on to our church lobby. You can sit in there. You can plug in your phones and laptops. You'll have to listen to me preach, but come on in. And tons of people came in. We set up tables, chairs, extension cords. PG&A gave us all kinds of giveaways for these people. But some people had decided they were just going to be ticked off. One person told my assistant, uh, Valerie, I am very disappointed in you, bitterly bitterly disappointed as she left with her arms full of free batteries, free flashlight, free snacks, free charging blocks, bitterly disappointed. While others seemed almost joyful. One person told me, I love this. It's like the community bonding experience of the 89 earthquake without any damage. It's great. <laughs> One family told me, we've been meaning to check out your church for years, and I guess this is what God had to do to get us here. <laughs> but my favorite comment came from somebody who said, 
You know, I went outside last night, and because there were no lights, I saw the most amazing sky, filled with stars. The Milky Way was completely visible. It was breathtaking. So what about you? Do you see the darkness, or do you see the stars? I mean, again, think of this. For David, nothing in his life, nothing has turned out exactly as he probably expected it would on that first day that Samuel anointed him the next king. And yet, here in his perhaps final song, he doesn't just see the darkness. He focuses on the stars. And his song is the song you get to sing to, if you choose to. I'll wrap up with this. A writer named Emily Kingsley uh, blogs about this. She has a child with some serious developmental challenges, and she blogs about what that feels like as a parent. She says it's like this. When you're going to have a baby, it's like planning a fabulous vacation to Italy. And you buy a bunch of guidebooks, you're going to see Venice, Rome, the Sistine Chapel. You learn some Italian phrases. The day arrives. You board the plane. It lands. And the flight attendant says, welcome to Holland. Holland? You say, I signed up for Italy. All my life, I've been preparing for Italy. There's been a change in the flight plans. At first, you're confused and disappointed. But after you've been there a while, you begin to look around and you notice... Holland has windmills, and Holland has tulips, and you know, Holland even has Rembrandts. Now, for the rest of your life, you could say, man, I was supposed to go to Italy, and the pain may never, ever go away. But, she says, if you spend your life mourning the fact that you didn't get to Italy, you'll never be free to enjoy Holland. And that principle applies to life in so many ways. David's life was very different from what he planned. Your life is different in some ways than what you planned. Don't just mourn for the rest of your life that you didn't get to Italy. Enjoy Holland. This is the bottom line. How do you frame your life? Because you are framing it somehow. Remember how my friend Dan chose to frame his life. Man, he could have chosen to focus on the disaster that happened to him. Instead, he says, my life is a living example of God by his sovereign grace working all things out together for good. How you frame it is how you'll feel it. And in many ways, deciding to become a follower of Jesus is completely changing the way you frame your life. Because now you're believing, God saved me because he delights in me. And he continues strengthening me to make me great. And my future, even if I die, is absolutely secure. You begin to frame your life as an example of God's sovereign grace, and everything changes. Would you bow your heads in a word of prayer with me? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the ways that that in our past you have acted. You've swooped down from heaven and acted again and again and again. 
And God, thank you that, that in the present, you keep strengthening us and forgiving of our sins over and over and over. And God, we believe that you keep us secure for the future. No matter what happens, your kingdom will come. Your will will be done forever and ever and ever and ever. And God, I just pray that if there's anybody here right now who perhaps they've been a believer for many years, but their perspective has slipped from that, and they've been seeking and finding evidence that just proves that ah, the world's terrible and I am terrible, I pray that they would recommit themselves to seeing life through this biblical viewpoint of your sovereign grace. And, I, and perhaps for the very first time, there's somebody here in this room who has been thinking of committing themselves to you, Lord. I pray that in this moment, they would realize that what happens when we commit ourselves to you isn't that instantly all the bad things in life go away, but we see them completely differently. And I pray that they would make that commitment right now. And we thank you, God. Thank you for what you've done through this series. We give you all the praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to our message podcast here at Peninsula Covenant Church. We would love the opportunity to connect with you more. We are located in Redwood City, California, and you can find us online at wearepcc.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter by simply searching for We Are PCC.